I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Babak Kamatian. Babak received his bachelor's degree in clinical psychology from the University of Tehran before finishing a master's degree in computer science at Brown University and his PhD in cognitive science also at Brown University. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Beckman Institute for Advanced Science and Technology at the University of Illinois. And his research is focused on the narratives that shape public discourse surrounding hot topics, how they evolve, how they're negotiated, and how they become internalized. He uses natural language processing methods applied to social media data, combined with experiments based on cognitive theories to investigate these questions. Babak, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Excited. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. So I'm, I'm first struck by your intro where you started off in clinical psychology, and then by the end of it, you're doing this cognitive science degree with very applied computational stuff. So how did, how did you make that shift over time? Uh, well, definitely not, not very easily. <laughs> Actually, but, let's, start, uh, let's start with what first got you interested in psych, and then we can, we can talk about how you later put a, a computational spin on it. Yeah, sounds good. Um, and uh, I feel like a little bit of background uh, about my family is in order because it relates to the path that I took. Uh, my my father's life passion was uh, literary translation and uh, literary works, and uh, as a result of that, I was very early on introduced to literature, and uh, that got me really curious about how how people think, uh, uh, the the thought processes that they have, the way humans communicate with one another. But then uh, my mother was a teacher, a primary school teacher. And then uh, through my mom's job, I came across the multitude of explanations that we uh, give out for our behaviors and other people's behaviors every day. Um, and my, because of the environment in my family, the first place where I try to find an answer to the questions I had about humans was literature. But uh, in my later teens, I uh, became a bit uh, disillusioned. I felt like literature likes to kind of immerse itself in the mystery ra rather than try to provide answers. And I felt like I wanted answers about why humans act the way they do. Uh, which is why I uh, majored in psychology uh, for, for my undergrad. Um, but then being in a clinical psychology program, I started to learn that I was more interested in, uh, the, in providing explanations for how humans in general behave rather than providing explanations for one particular person's pattern, I don't know, behavior. Uh, which would have made me not a good clinician at all, but, but a good basic scientist. Um, so I, became, I gravitated more towards uh, cognitive psychology. And there I became more interested in computational models. And the idea there was that uh, I didn't want to just have my intuitions to go on, then, uh, coming up with theories and explanations, 
I wanted to be more exact and making things for, formal and computational to me does that to a significant extent because it forces you to think of different variables and how exactly they relate to one another. Um, is, is it the proportion that uh, of this variable to this variable that matters? Is it, do they have like, you know, additive effects? And all of that other stuff you have to really figure out, otherwise the numbers do not work out. Uh, and that's how I uh, got more into computational cognitive science. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So it, it allowed you to study larger populations because clinical psychology is focused on the individual and then even traditional psychology might be smaller experiments as opposed to the computational work you're doing. You're, you're gathering data from like, well, in some cases in, in your dissertation work, millions of, of online posts. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Although there is an additional piece there because I mean, for the first few years of graduate school, I still did behavioral experiments. Uh, and there, uh, another thing that kind of bothered me was that, well, these experiments allowed me to be, really control the situation, really be exact in how uh, different factors, you know, interact. But uh, always when, when you really try to control the stuff, it becomes uh, very unrealistic. And lots of times even participants tell you, tell you, well, this was such a weird situation to put me in. <laughs> I, I wouldn't face this kind of situation in my regular life. Um, and uh, that uh, bothered me a bit. And, and that's uh, the connection to me starting to study social media because there I don't, I don't even think most people no, they are observed as much as they actually are observed and the data is available. Uh, so people are just you know, posting their thoughts. And uh, as you said, you, you can look at it at, at a really grand scale, which helps um, do away with a lot of the noise that we needed really a strong experimental you know, control in behavioral experiments to um, get at. And by behavioral experiments, I just mean what uh, people generally think of as uh, psychology experiments. Yeah. So I'm sure you've heard of, of the idea of psychology is too weird, like it's it's too focused on Western cultures. So I'm wondering how or, or whether um, psychology research differed in, in Iran. Um, it, 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 it's certainly, uh, deferred, but uh, I think it was a still weird there. It was just mm -hmm. a different kind of weird. Um, the Iranian psychological community, research community is more affected by the continental uh, research trends. Ideas that are more philosophical in nature that came out of France, that came out of, you know, uh, Germany in the last couple of centuries. Uh, and those, those kinds of places. And it's, it has kind of an anti-modern science attitude to it even, rather what than- What does that mean? Um, well, this, there's this kind of belief that uh, that kind of more philosophical, more introspective approach gets at uh, 
things about human nature that uh, modern scientific method that doesn't have the tools or doesn't have the conceptual apparatus to get. To get so at. it's more akin to psychoanalysis. Yeah, for example, psychoanalysis is uh, very popular there. And that was definitely not me. I mean, although I, I should say there's a community of cognitive uh, researchers and those would feel much more at home uh, in the American uh, education system. Um, they are, of course, more interested in things like you know, neuroscience or more, more interested in computational modeling and controlled experiments, but um, that is not the dominant force in Iranian psychology. I would say there mm -hmm. have been attempts to make the Iranian psychology less weird, but mm -hmm. uh, they haven't been successful at all. Uh, mm -hmm. That makes sense. So once you came back, and it, and it does sound like you were in that maybe minority population of people who were doing more traditional cognitive work, and you started your PhD in cognitive science at Brown, and you mentioned you were originally doing more behavioral experiments before moving on to this computational research. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, the, the reason for that wasn't because I didn't want to do computational stuff. I did come to Brown wanting to do a combination of behavioral and computational work. But um, there is always a kind of career cost to making the kind of transitions that I've repeatedly done. And one career cost is that uh, I need, in this case was that I needed to spend several years learning computational methods. Uh, so in the meantime, what I did was I developed uh, the more psychological experiments. And for that, I drew uh, inspiration from actually my undergraduate um, uh, clinical psychologist. Um, I'd, I'd be happy to go more into the, what, what those early experiments were about. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Um, I had noticed that there's a lot of power in clinical psych psychology assigned to labels for disorders. Uh, and I was noticing this on the part of the clinicians where if you say someone has bipolar disorder, all of a sudden your view of most of the things that they do or that they tell you totally changes. But I noticed that even uh, the people that came to a clinician felt different after being told that uh, they are suffering from X or Y disorder. And that was despite the fact that lots of times they had no idea what that even meant uh, before you tell them. And that, that was uh, the inspiration for this idea that these labels, uh, of course, the reason why they are considered powerful is because there's a lot of information associated with the label, but lots of times the person who's being affected by them, like the person visiting clinician, doesn't know anything about those. They are taking those on social faith. They are just assuming that this clinician knows a lot of things about their condition now that they didn't otherwise. So I wanted to, um, test these two ideas 
One, one is the actual informational utility that the label has as an explanation. And we wanted to compare that with uh, the social utility that it has and see if people actually confuse social utility for uh, informational utility. If the fact that it, uh, it is commonly used uh, by clinicians, is, is that going to lead to people feeling like it's informative even when and that's exactly what we found. We give people these completely circular labels, um, and then those labels would be used as an explanation. And as long as the label was commonly used, uh, people would feel like that, that was much better. And I can give you an example of that. Uh, imagine um, I tell you uh, there. Uh, somebody observes several people who uh, have this kind of compulsion to bite their fingers. And I tell you that this, this is commonly known as, uh, I know, Aethymia, some made up name. But, but I'll, I'll tell you that this name is common, but there's nothing else that is known about this category. So it says, that's been introduced, nobody knows anything. You come across somebody else who shows this behavior and somebody asks you, why is this person showing this behavior? And you say, because they have aphania. Now, how good of an explanation is this? This is completely circular, but as long as you tell people this is a commonly used label, it appears to them as much more uh, informative, but if you tell them somebody, some expert or group, a small group of experts has made this up, people immediately see that this is circular. They're like, no, mm -hmm. this is not a good explanation. Yeah, gotcha. So were you only looking at outsiders or were you also uh, studying what happens for the pe person who might receive a diagnosis? Um, well, a lot of this, uh, most of these experiments that we did, uh, and this wasn't just with uh, medical diagnosis. We looked at uh, all sorts of ca categories and all sorts of labels, but uh, most of these were done with lay people, uh, a lot of whom would be subject to this kind of diagnosis. But um, but we didn't, we haven't tested actual subjects, of, you know, diagnostic tests. What we have done is uh, testing uh, clinicians. Uh, and we find the same effect among mental health professionals, except if you bring their attention to the fact that this is what you're manipulating, they, they're like, wait a moment, <laughs> this, this doesn't make sense for me to be doing this. <laughs> so they, con they, they, they control that intuition of this is, uh, an informative category better than their attention is brought to the fact that we are manipulating social acceptance. Mm -hmm. But as long as they do not know that we're doing that, they show the, uh, the same effect. Uh -huh. That makes sense. I've heard, I've heard mixed uh, arguments for and against um, psychiatric diagnoses, because on one hand, it's like you're telling a person there's something wrong with them and that might have negative effects. And on the other hand, you're telling them this is understood, and we know how to treat you, so maybe it could provide reassurance in that type of way. 
Um, yeah, cer certainly. I mean, uh, and both there, there, there's quite a bit of uh, empirical evidence uh, that it, in some cases it can help uh, with coping. In some some cases it can be uh, problematic. But I think the 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 finding that we we had is is difficult to frame it in a positive way because it it means that something that is not informative is being considered informative just because people use a particular label a lot. Uh -huh. So I think for this one, we, we can uh, confidently say, yeah, this, this is not great. Uh -huh. uh, people shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, so I see the connection much more clearly now between this and your computational research because both of them are focused on studying language. Yeah, and also about uh, kind of the social aspect of language, and that's 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 what uh, really excites me. Uh, there is there's this interface between an individual person and their community, and it affects every aspect of how they think. In this case, for example, whether other people use a particular name that I don't know anything about affects how I think about. About that, and my later research is, uh, I would say, more about how this collective uh, social source of information that deeply affects our thinking, how that is actually negotiated, because people aren't just passively buying into uh, that social perception. People are also having conversations about it. People are arguing about all sorts of things, and that probably down the road will lead to somebody else finding another label, you know, really informative that is not or vice versa. Yeah. So you mentioned this involves gathering data from social media posts and then analyzing the text. So how, do, how does that actually work? I guess this would be a good place to, to define what natural language processing research is. Uh, yes. Um, well, Natural language processing is a, it's kind of a compromised term uh, used in the more computational domains to talk to uh, computational approaches for making computers behave as if they understand natural language. So uh, imagine when a human hears a sentence, it usually induces a they, they get a meaning out of it. There, there's a meaning that they perceive, and then they might respond in a particular way. So natural language processing uh, is related to the use of computers for doing similar things, for uh, extracting aspects of the meaning in utterances that humans find important, and, and then possibly just responding to those. And it really uh, bloomed, I would say, as, as a field uh, in the last few decades because advances in computer science allowed us to move away from toy examples of natural language and really get at what people are actually talking about. There, there is a ton of data available online that you can use to train these computer programs to act like humans and to use language 
like humans. And there's also a, a lot more computing power, which allows us to ask these computer programs to do much more sophisticated uh, inferences. And that is what I tried to do with, with my uh, dissertation work, but also with the NLP, natural language processing based work that I did before my dissertation. Uh -huh. So it seems connected to a very deep philosophical question, which is wondering whether the computers are actually learning language and learning meaning, as you said, or if it's more of, of just this pattern recognition and an abstract thing that wouldn't generalize into, into I guess, what we could call real intelligence. Um, well, I think uh, the jury is still out on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I believe the jury will still be out on that for a few decades now. But uh, I am personally a behaviorist when it comes to evaluation of language understanding. Uh, if, if at some point, whatever behavior, we would, linguistic behavior we would expect from a human, would exactly see from a computer program. Uh, for all intents and purposes, as far as I am, I care that computer understands and uses language, but mm -hmm. you're no way there. Like uh, I think current uh, computer programs are much better at uh, pretending to have a point to make, mm -hmm. uh, but if you let them uh, generate language for long enough, you see that they don't know, uh, they, they don't have that kind of overarching point to make. They don't have that kind of intention yet built into the language generations that mm -hmm. humans do have. And, and I actually, I did directly study this. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a studied language generation uh, uh, and compared it between humans and uh, computers and you know it there, but I can say that computers are getting much closer. Even if you look at the state of the art in 2019 and compare that with uh, a state of the art in 2020, which is what we did, uh, the quality gap between humans and computers uh, shrunk by large degrees. Mm -hmm. So you need to wait for the computer to talk more and more as time passes for mm -hmm. you to notice that, wait a moment, this is not a human. A human yeah. would never make such a weird comment. Uh -huh. Have you heard of, I think it was from OpenAI, this program that allows you to type in pretty much anything and it'll spit out an image, even if it's something completely made up, like, you know, uh, a baby radish wearing a tutu while walking a dog and it spits out a drawing of exactly that. And you can, t and there were hundreds of examples of, of some very funny images that it seems like you would need true intelligence to be able to, to mock up. Um, well, you would be surprised at what uh, computers kind of speed out when they are fed, you know, trillions of example cases from real cases of people uh, actually doing things. Um, but, but again, I think one, one thing that I don't like about where AI is currently going is uh, this kind of attitude that 
bigger is making the models just bigger and bigger is gonna solve our over problems. So uh, add mil millions more parameters, billions more parameters, and throw even more data at it. And uh, human behavior will necessarily uh, come out the other uh, from the other side. But that's not how human evolution, for example, works. There was a lot of constraints uh, built into human brains by natural selection, which make it uh, much more likely to have this really highly organized, highly hierarchical structure that we see in human language. And you don't just get that by you know throwing data at a mostly unstructured uh, artificial neural network. Mm -hmm. So the larger it is in general, the less efficient it might be. Well, it definitely the larger it is, it definitely produces better text. That's what mm -hmm. I can say based on the state of the art, which is also actually from OpenAI that I study, but we still see when you analyze it deeply as we did and quantitatively, you see that uh, it, it is still lacks that kind of overarching the story that is trying to tell, that, that overarching point. The, the logic of the generated text somewhere breaks down because the model wasn't incentivized to think like a human. The model was uh -huh. just incentivized to generate the next word uh, like a human. Uh -huh. So where does your your own research fit into the to this, um, like on a scale of sizeability? Because it, it it sounds like to me millions of social media posts is huge, but it but it also sounds like compared to to these other um, AIs we were just talking about that might have data sets in the trillions. Is that, is that comparatively small? It certainly is comparatively small. And uh, my attitude to the use of AI is that we should use as uh, only as large a model as is needed to capture a particular nuance in uh, human behavior and human use of language, and no bigger. And not, not just because of the reason I gave, but also because, I mean, there are uh, environmental concerns here. These, there's an enormous amount of money that gets spent on training or even fine tuning these uh, state-of-the-art models that I just mentioned. And the carbon footprint it, is off the charts. Uh, so we, we don't want our, solution to be worse than the problem. Um, so that's that's why I I try to stay away from really really huge models and just um, try to build in constraints that are informed by cognitive theory, by psychological research into the models to make them more efficiently get at what really matters to me. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of uh, the examples you did, either your dissertation work or maybe before then during grad school. Uh, yeah, sure, sure thing. So uh, the first topic that I studied in this kind of larger scale social 
media data was of same-sex marriage. And this was a topic that was very close to my heart because I'm queer myself, but uh, also a very good topic to study because in the last dozen years or so, the attitudes have massively shifted. And this period coincides with when uh, places like Reddit and Twitter became really popular. So we actually have online data to see how people were talking about this. Um, so as I said, I was very interested in how people negotiate their uh, beliefs, their social community. Um, so that got me to the question of uh, what, what kind of discourse may have facilitated that attitude change? And uh, what has been the discourse consequence of that shift itself? Are people talking about gay marriage in a different way now than they did a decade ago? Um, and initially we looked at uh, the way people discuss morality because that seemed to be very central. For example, the anti-sensex marriage crowd seemed uh, very focused on things like religious arguments that uh, have these moral flavors of not just what would happen, but what should happen, what humans should do, and this kind of universal um, truths about actions. Um, and we wanted to compare that with uh, consequence-based arguments because that seemed to be what uh, the prodigalization folks were more focused on. The, the things that I would hear in uh, among the people around me would be things like, it's going to be good for the economy or, you know, the, the health care um, for LGBT plus folks is going to get much better if uh, this is uh, legalized. So we gathered uh, hundreds of thousands of comments from Reddit and we classified them using uh, uh, human ratings into value-based and consequence-based. And the pattern was actually surprising for us. We expected the inflection point for discourse to be in 2015 when uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided uh, nationwide what, what would happen, but it seemed the battle was fought much earlier. Um, so there was an, in, an increase in discussions of both values and consequences until 2012, when majority support was first reached in the US for in support of same-sex marriage. And after that, both of them died down for several years. Mm -hmm. um, and it was as if people felt the change was happening, they fought it out, and once the new moderate support was reached, uh, they felt that, okay, the battle is won or lost based on which side uh, that mm -hmm. they were on. Now, now we're going home. Mm -hmm. And then talk of consequences uh, didn't pick back up until after the Supreme Court ruling, mm -hmm. uh, which is to be expected, and back. Yeah. At that point, people were already kind of moving on. They were talking about um, 
here's here's what might happen with respect to other electoral policies mm -hmm. based on the change that has happened uh, for centrist matters. Yeah. And that kind of gave me uh, that that was the inspiration for my dissertation work because I noticed that there's there's more to the patterns of discourse than just uh, that kind of moral focus, what kind of moral argument you're making. And I think as uh, social scientists, it's easy for us to lose sight of that because if um, measures of morality are the, the only tools that you have, uh, if they are the only hammer that you have, everything starts to look like a nail. And you try to explain everything in terms of moral dimension. Um, but uh, there, there seem to be more there uh, that we, and, and we try to answer uh, what that next thing might be in my dissertation work on narrow and legalization discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that made, so that made a lot of sense that it, that the majority happened before there was actually a legal turning point. I mean, it, it, it would, because the alternative would be that the law happens before there's majority support, which would probably, uh, that'd be surprising. Yeah, it's, it's as if, you know, the, the public made up its mind and then a few years later, the Supreme Court, court also caught up and essentially mm -hmm. confirmed what had been decided uh, more broadly. Right. So then it, it seems like that's been the same pattern for marijuana legalization as well. Uh, it, in a sense, yes, but it, it's a bit different with marijuana legalization because uh, a lot of it was decided by ballot initiatives uh, directly by the voters. So uh, there's a closer connection there between legalization and public discourse. People don't have to wait for several years for the Supreme Court uh -huh. to decide the issue. That makes um, sense. But uh, it, it was also the case that uh, from the samples of conversations that I initially looked at, it felt like there was something else that made the difference with narrow legalization discourse. Mm -hmm. There was uh, this fundamental tension between people using uh, examples from their personal lives, as opposed to making arguments about what was happening broadly. For example, mm -hmm. somebody saying, uh, my, my cousin got jailed for marijuana possession and it really ruined his career prospects and this is why we should legalize. And it was very interesting for me that there is no generalized argument. In this case, the person isn't even uh, providing an argument why their cousin's case is something that applies to a lot of people. And that's, uh, that's in contrast with somebody saying, we should legalize marijuana because the marijuana industry would provide a boost to the economy. Um, so that kind of tension between generalized versus anecdotal discourse was the thing that we focused on. And this, this was the contribution. Uh, and uh, I, I, I can go into more detail about what, what exactly happened there. 
I'd like to ask you more about how accurate in general these models tend to be, whether it's, it's looking at distinguishing between anecdote and generalized argument, or whether it's looking at different dimensions of, of moral values or really anything, like how, how accurate do the NLP models tend to be? Um, it depends uh, uh, on uh, what, at what level of abstraction you're applying the models. Lots of uh, papers that come out do not get very detailed in the modeling. Uh, they would, for example, classify an entire comment as, okay, this one is, you know, anecdotal, this one is generalized. And that is hard to justify when, for example, you're trying to classify a three-page essay that someone wrote on Reddit. And part, parts of it are anecdotes from their life, parts of it are generalized arguments. But uh, the good thing about the modern methods in natural language processing is that uh, with enough data and with making your machinery a little bit more sophisticated, you can make the models more nuanced. You can make them more detailed. And in my case, I looked at um, the convergence of three different properties of anecdotes. One is that uh, they tend to talk about a specific people or entity. My, for example, my cousin versus governments in general. Um, they talk about particular events rather than just the stable state of the world. And they, the events that they talk about usually happen at a specific times. And the idea here is that if you try to evaluate the presence of anecdote in a comment by the convergence of three different features, you're much less likely to get it wrong. Because for you to get it wrong, essentially all, all three uh, features need to be wrong. Uh -huh. And how good are they at withstanding like things that might be confusing? So for example, if you have something like my cousin is a legislator and this new bill was just passed that states, so it's like, it's, you could view that as either an anecdote because of the cousin part or as the generalized statement because you're talking about legislation. Well, uh, the good thing about applying the model at a final level is that uh, you could have separate labels. You could say, even this part of the same sentence is anecdotal. This part of the same sentence is generalized. Um, but it is true that there, especially when you're dealing with social media data, there is a good deal of noise. And that is why a lot of the time spent uh, in these projects is spent on uh, cleaning and preparing the data. Uh, for example, in the marijuana legalization project, I spent an entire year uh, cleaning up the data and preparing it for analysis and then another year and a half analyzing the data. Um, and the reason you, you can imagine why it's some of the comments are coming from someone who got high and then went on Reddit and posted a rant. Uh, that requires a bit of pre-processing before the computer program can actually make sense of you know, what, what they are saying. Mm -hmm. um, but 
we are getting really good at this. Uh, the, the models are getting really good at this because again, data is very available, uh, computing resources are very available mm -hmm. and it, it all builds on each other. So if somebody else builds a really good model, I don't have to start from scratch. I can just uh, extend their model and adapt it to my particular use. I'm sure, or I would hope that the social media data is anonymous, but despite that, I'm guessing there are still some ethical concerns about people wanting wanting more data privacy. But then on the other hand, if data is openly available, you can have new and exciting research, which might have, have real practical benefits. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk about that. We don't have to take a particular stance or not, but just talk about the, the, the problem. Um, I. I do agree that uh, privacy is a cause for concern, and I think my 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 research projects all are a good example of that. Partly because, for instance, Reddit does not uh, provide researchers with location information because they are worried about privacy concerns. But um, it is a still possible to computationally estimate for most Reddit users where they are from based on uh, the all of the posts that they've left online, the time at which they post the things that they post, um, and which places on Reddit they usually post. Uh -huh. And this is, this might come across as scary uh, and it, it actually is although for example as researchers uh, i am not allowed to publicly disclose any of those inferred locations mm -hmm. so so those are kept secure only to be accessed as in aggregation across all of the one million users for example in my now visualization data set um, so i wouldn't single out any particular person but these are definitely concerns. Now, what would need to change is uh, either clear regulation, uh, like legal regulation, or um, clear ethical guidelines for using these data sets, because right now, um, all, all of this, for example, Reddit information that I'm using is legally considered public information. So essentially, as soon as people post those comments, uh, they are essentially giving me the right to use that. Uh, and anybody else to use that information. So there needs to be a bit more attention to this issue so that people get to make that choice more um, consciously, because I'm pretty sure most of the people who are posting on Reddit are not thinking about it this way. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you in general, ethics guidelines, you can you can probably expect researchers, especially in a university setting, to to follow those. But then if this is publicly available data in theory, anyone can can do the same type of stuff. Exactly. And for a lot of for much more nefarious purposes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are you are you still optimistic about that, given that um, given these issues and that computing power is is 
growing so rapidly. I mean, another another thing that comes to mind that's it's different from your work, but you know, like these deep mind fake fake photos and videos uh, that are that are very hard to tell from from real. Um, I th I think I think there is definitely cause to worry because and the deepest fear that I have about the good quality of safely generated uh, stuff is that there would be a breakdown in uh, trust, total trust in discourse. I mean, we're already worried about uh, trust in public discourse, but um, these models can generate millions of comments in the amount of time that it takes for me to write one comment as a human. And if, um, and if you have the perception that you know a lot of the landscape of public discourse is being generated by these kinds of models, first of all, those models could be up to really nefarious purposes and it could really affect human you know, discourse. So that's one worry. But even if I'm talking to an actual human, I might not give them the benefit of the doubt because at that point, everybody might seem like an algorithm. Everybody who doesn't believe oh, yeah. in me is a total algorithm. Uh -huh. and, and that's also uh, a scary thought. Well, I haven't considered this at all for text. So, so the idea is that you could hypothetically have have like millions of comments from from basically a bot, and that being surrounded by that might shift your opinions, even if even if it's it's someone doing that for nefarious reasons. Yes. And then even if it's not a bot, you'll be more skeptical of humans because you 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 kind of have your defenses up. Yes. Although wow. the hope is that you know this is a kind of. Uh, co-evolution of the hunter and prey. So uh -huh. the hope is that since a lot of this data is openly available, and a lot of these computer programs are also openly available, uh, you would have contracting forces. You would have mm -hmm. people who work on much better, you know, uh, classification of these kinds of bugs and mm -hmm. uh, keep them and kind of out them, if, 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 if you will, on social media. Um, and this actually happened on Reddit, for example. There was a GPT-3 based, like the state of the art in text generation. Uh, someone had access to it. And, uh, someone created a Reddit account. And for an entire week, that person was just ranking on Reddit until someone caught them and offered them as, oh, this is, this is an algorithm. It's not an actual human. It was then confirmed. Um, so the hope is that with making this type of research more openly available, that would allow us to also organize against these nefarious uh, influences and uh -huh. uh, prevent that kind of breakdown in trust that I was mentioning uh -huh. uh, really happening. Yeah, that's reassuring. So what are you planning for future research in the next in the next five years or so? Um, yeah, um, I, I got really promising results with uh, the Baron legalization uh, discourse, which I would like to follow up on. I'm, I'm going to very briefly just say what the key findings there um, so that in the context of that, I can describe uh, future plans. Um, 
I found that even though uh, experiments usually show that anecdotes are more effective uh, in argumentation, people then uh, big social decisions are about to happen, actually double down on uh, making their generalized arguments. And it's only after the legalization has happened that they start to share you know, their experiences and anecdotes. Um, and in a non-argumentative uh, manner. Uh, and this is to the detriment of both you know, consensus building, but also the kind of uh, language that they focus on uh, totally ignores some of the more nuanced information that is relevant to the big decision. For example, the legal nuances of marijuana regulation or the health effects of marijuana which presumably should be center stage in any discussion of this legalization. Um, so what would be really interesting to see is whether this is just an inevitable direction that public discourse is going in, a kind of like more um, less, less informed, less directed by successful persuasion, uh, kind of discussion, uh, or this was specific to this this kind of topic that I studied. And in my postdoc position for the next few years, I'm hoping to answer this question by looking at immigration and Black Lives Matter in particular. Why? Because these are issues that show very different attitude patterns instead of. Uh, the U.S. population coming closer uh, to one opinion, these issues are actually uh, becoming more polarized. Uh -huh. um, so there's a lot to be learned about uh, what's, uh, what, what's specific to issues that are moving towards resolution and what's, what's keeping other issues from focusing on this um, as for kind of broader career-wise, where this would fit in, uh, I'm hoping to go into academia, apply for faculty positions following my postdoc, mm -hmm. partly just because I uh, I love teaching and uh, also doing novel novel research, uh, developing new theories about why people do the things that they do. And um, one's hands are a bit more tied in those directions if one goes the non-academic route mm -hmm. into industry, for example. Uh, yeah. You would have other concerns, of course, you know, the mm -hmm. bottom line is probably going to be uh, the industry. Yeah, well, I hope that works out and that you get to keep, keep sharing your research. Thank you very much for your time. Of course, uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it, was, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you.